Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SlateMoney. And by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, Go to braintreepayments.com slash slate money. Hello, and welcome to the outrageous edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. I'm very glad to be here today. I, I I am too. I feel like this is a good meaty week for business and finance news. Uh, we are, of course, as ever, joined by the senior Moneybox columnist <laughs> at, at Slate. Last week we had the slightly less senior, but she was awesome. Yeah, she was. Allie is always awesome. Um, but this is, this one is Jordan Weissman. You've probably heard him before. Hello, Felix. I'm back. Hello, listeners. Good to be here. And we're going to talk about the Volkswagen diesel scandal, of course. We have to talk about that. Um, Kathy yeah. is very excited to talk I about am. that. I know my that. goodness. I'm I am going to talk about Kickstarter, which is one of my favorite companies. They just did something interesting in Delaware, and it's not that often that something interesting happens in Delaware. Uh, but first, we have a cartoon villain, and to help us talk about our cartoon villain, we have not only Jordan Weissman, but also Audrey Quinn. Yay! 
Hey, guys. <laughs> Audrey Quinn, the indefatigable producer of Slate Money, has been almost as obsessed about this Shkreli character as Kathy is about VW. But, Jordan, who is this? For those of us who have been under a rock, who is this Shkreli guy? Well, first off, he went to my high school. But, what? Uh, what? Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, yeah, so Martin Shkreli. Is he your age? He's a, four years older than me, I believe. He's, um, he, he is a millennial, though. Yeah, oh, he's very much millennial. Please don't hold it against us. Not that you need anything else to hold against <laughs> us. But anyway. So Mar- I like millennials, just for the record. I appreciate that, Even Kathy. this one? Not this one. Uh, yes, this one. Absolutely. Jordan, are you kidding? We're oh. talking about Martin. Oh, Shkreli? No. Yeah, so Martin Shkreli. Who is Shkreli? Well, uh, this week he was uh, um, the most hated man in America, I'm pretty sure. I, I think that you can say that like, just factually. Yeah. Um, he ru- is an ex-hedge funder. He's a little older than I am, as I said. Uh, who runs a startup called Turing Pharmaceuticals. And Turing has an interesting business model, uh, wherein they purchase an old, non-patented drug. In this case, it was a 62-year-old drug uh, called Daraprim that treats a... uh, a parasitic infection known as toxoplasmosis. And people who have AIDS take that drug, right? AIDS, cancer patients, infants, typically sympathetic people. Just to to sort of come up to speed here, about 50% of the population has toxoplasmosis. It's a very, very common bug to have. And for the overwhelming majority of us, it does us no harm at all. But if you have a weakened immune system by, for instance, having AIDS or being pregnant or something like that, then in a rare circumstance, it can become very dangerous, and then you need to treat it with Daraprim. Exactly, the 62-year-old drug. Well, the thing about Daraprim was there was only one company making it. Uh, Turing went and bought the rights to that drug, and overnight hiked the price from about $13 a tablet to over $700 a tablet. And the $13 a tablet was already nosebleedingly expensive. In the rest of the world, this drug costs somewhere between five cents and a dollar. And even in this country, it was a dollar until quite recently. And then slowly the various rights holders have been increasing the price. Do we have any idea how much it actually costs to produce? Or does that is that an irrelevant The marginal question? cost is it's almost like software. It's basically zero to produce a pill. Uh, yeah, on a 62-year-old pill, there's nothing. Once you have all... I mean, you've had the manufacturing equipment for a long time, presumably. It's right. not much. But the... I, I mean, th- this story just caught on like wildfire after uh, it was on the front page of the po- uh, on the uh, front page of the New York Times. I think USA Today did it before the Times, though. I mean, a lot of people latched onto this, um, and it's all over Facebook. All over Facebook. Eventually, uh, Hillary Clinton weighed in because she happened to be debuting a plan to deal with high pharmaceutical prices at this time, so she had a convenient cartoon villain. I mean, this guy did not make it easy on himself. He also appeared on the world's worst ever television interview. I have seen a lot of bad television interviews, but this guy appearing on Bloomberg TV, if you haven't seen it, his facial expressions alone are just like, this man is not human. He also went on Twitter and started quoting Eminem. It was not good. Can we bring Audrey in? Because she's been writing to us all week, listeners, and I really want her to say it in person. Go ahead. Yeah, so I I was telling you guys earlier that it's so easy for me to vilify this guy, I see him. I see him on the same level as um, that college student that was later accused of, of bringing his roommate to suicide. Putting a webcam of by him putting yeah by putting a webcam on the internet <laughs> exactly, and and also same. Uh, I put him also same level as my building owner, like people who are easily <laughs> just evil. And I want to hear: is there 
is there anything redeeming? Do you feel like there's any way that he is being wrongly portrayed here? I feel like there's this incredibly strong sort of knee-jerk feel for people to come out with a slate pitchy, actually, it's good to raise drug prices. Um, I, I think that good old Larry Summers had a crack at it on, on MSNBC this week. But no, there's actually, I don't think there's really anything yeah. redeeming here. So, I, I'm, I'm going to say something redeeming. I mean, like not redeeming about him, but redeeming about this coming to light is that this this kind of thing probably happens all the time in smaller ways. It does. So we should be aware of it. So it, it brings exposure to this problem of why don't we have better systems for producing drugs at low cost that and are no actually, longer patent. And, and I have strong feelings about this because it's not the systems for producing generic drugs it that's not the problem the problem is the arcane fda fda laws about and rules about how you can produce a generic drug and basically the way that you if i wanted to come out and say i think that martin shkreli is a bad person and i'm going to just produce this drug myself and sell it for a dollar the first thing I need to do under FDA regulations is accumulate a very large amount of Daraprim so that I have that existing drug to which I can then compare it to. And so, of course, the first thing that Shkreli did when he bought this company or bought these rights was make it effectively impossible for any potential competitor to do that. But even if I did, even if I somehow managed to buy up a huge amount of this drug at $750 a pill so that I could then have prove that my drug was just exactly the same as his drug, then all he would need to do is reduce the price himself to like 10 cents until I went away. Yeah. And then he could move it back up to 750 bucks again. Yeah, there, there's even more beyond that. The FDA right now has a like roughly three-year backlog on generic drug applications. So there's this basically window where any company that does something like Shkreli tried to pull, they have a guaranteed window of profitability. There cannot be a competitor right now because there's this backlog. So they know if I raise this price overnight, no one's going to swoop in. And, and, I, and the most obtuse FDA regulation of all, of course, is the one because there are lots and lots of versions of Daraprim around the world. You can get this in Europe for less than a dollar. You can get this in India for less than five cents. And the FDA has just basically decided that the... FDA equivalents in Germany and Japan and, you know, all of these other highly sophisticated countries with great medical systems are not to be trusted. And so you can't just import those generics from those countries. I, I, that seems, I'm sorry, I didn't need to interrupt. That seems ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, we should be able to say the German generic version of this is, is, it's, it's for okay. sale. That, yeah. that, that makes me want to ask, why don't we see this more? If um, Are we saying that all other pharmaceutical CEOs have higher moral standards, so they're not doing this also? No, we've seen we've seen smaller versions of it. That's the thing. I mean, and one of the reasons why Daraprim was costing $13 a pill to begin with rather than 50 cents is precisely because this has been going on for ages and there's been this huge run-up in generic drug prices for quite a while now. Yeah, there's... It, you know, typically, even when it's increasing the price by 300, 400%, you'll see a pill go from, you know, five cents a pill, 10 cents a pill to 30 cents a pill. That that kind of a thing has been happening frequently, and it's been increasing drug costs across the healthcare market. Um, it's just that 
there have only been a select number of cases where you saw a drug go into, you know, from $10 a pill to the, you know, hundreds of dollars range. And this was by far the most notable one we had seen. So far. I mean, it, the, the, the flip side of me saying it, it shows exposure is that uh, other assholes like Shkreli might now say, hey, what a good idea. I'll do this, too. And I'll just this. This is not a secret business model. But you're right. right. There's just the fact that the opprobrium of the world came crashing down on some vaguely human kids' shoulders is not going to prevent other businesses from doing this in maybe slightly less obnoxious a manner. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it should be said here, Shkreli did go on the air eventually and say, I'm going to lower the price, though he didn't say by how much. Or when. Or when, exactly. He said in the coming weeks. So there at least was some effect. We'll see what the result is. I did talk to... um, actually a Harvard professor who had one interesting idea for ways to deal with or try to prevent companies from doing this in the future, um, which was the FDA could try to discourage this sort of behavior uh, by looking out for these sort of instances when the prices skyrocket. And when they do, go and look for another manufacturer who is willing to manufacture it for less and say, we will expedite your process if you will come in and make this pill for cheaper. And, you know, maybe the Veterans Administration, uh, you know, the, the VA hospitals will buy a certain amount of it. So you have a guaranteed contract. And the reason why this might be doable is because there actually already is a similar process for when there are drug shortages. Um, they, when, they, when they notice that a, a generic drug is about to go off the market, um, which does happen sometimes now with some frequency because there are so few manufacturers of some of these drugs, um, they go and they look for someone else to do it. So that is within their powers. And it could complicate the math for companies who th- are thinking of trying a stunt like this. So it's not like we're totally powerless. There are at least things we could try. Or we could just, you know, have a, whatever the equivalent well, of a dual taxation treaty is with the Germans and say, just I would import love it. drugs from anywhere. I would love it if Congress were to go and do that. That would be awesome. But I have absolutely <laughs> zero. Really act? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I have zero faith even <laughs> this will motivate change. Some people, I mean, People have made the comparison to kind of Fab Torre, right? Like he was the guy. He was so bad that uh, his Wait, who's that? The, guy, the guy from Goldman Sachs, fabulous Fab. Uh, he oh, helped, and yeah. when his uh, his wrongdoing came to light, uh, that helped get Dodd Frank passed. So the idea is like maybe this guy will phone his wrongdoing will finally motivate some sort of action in Congress to fix our pharma regulations. Hmm. Uh, action in Congress. What a, what a dream. What a, <laughs> you see, I, I dreamed a We dream. will have a dream. Important question. Did the Pope tell them to do it or not? So uh, I think that that's the only thing. That so in a minute, we're going to talk about VW. First, I need to mention that we have a sponsor. We are sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter, which is the best way to hire people. Martin Shkreli was fired from his previous hedge fund because he was useless. Don't Hire useless people, hire the best people, and do that by going to ZipRecruiter.com. That is the place where you get to automatically post one job ad to a gazillion different places. That's actually a technical term. And everyone in the world who will be awesome at your job will get it, and they can minnow all the applicants down for you and put just the best and most incredibly talented people in front of you and you can hire them and you can go and conquer the planet and not be evil. Do the ZipRecruiter thing. You know what you can do? You can try it for free. No cost. You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money. So just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash slate money and it's free. Kathy. Yeah. 
I believe even if you have been under a rock all week, <laughs> you have definitely heard about Volkswagen and the way it cheated on its emissions test. Yeah, and there's been a lot of lot of talk about this stuff. Not all of it has, has that many facts attached to it, so I'm just going to um, plug this really great um, article I found on Vox that really describes this stuff in, in detail, and I'm going to steal some of the points they made, which is the following. Um, since 2009, okay, they've been doing this cheating thing where for diesel cars, Volkswagen has been sending diesel cars over to the United States. In fact, 482,000 vehicles in the United States are of this type where they're diesel cars which um, which cheat on their emissions tests for the specifically for nitrogen oxide. So in the United States, we test for nitrogen oxide and CO2 and the nitrogen oxide tests have been cheated. On. So just to clear something up which I certainly was confused about. There are two big types of emissions that we worry about. One is carbon emissions, yes. which is CO2. And the other one is pollutants, yes. which is NOx. Cause smog. smog. Yeah, exactly. And while carbon emissions do incredible damage to the planet as a whole over decades, smog kills people every year. And I think it was also Vox, Brad Plumer did a back of the envelope calculation and said that the excess NOx emissions from Volkswagen's cars alone, you can't really put a firm number on it, but it's at least dozens and quite possibly hundreds of people have died as a result of this. It's really outrageous. And what's interesting is, unlike in most situations, in this situation, the United States regulations are actually stronger than those in Europe. Um, the Europeans, uh, for their car emissions test, mostly focus on CO2, as I understand it. And and another thing to keep in mind is that diesel actually has higher gas mileage. So that's one of the reasons when you go to Europe, you see lots of diesel cars. But in the United States, you don't, because diesel cars typically don't pass the test for nitrogen oxide. So it's, an, it's a fascinating trade-off to me, because... I was there was one auto journalist who was saying, yeah, that was really weird that whenever I would review a Volkswagen diesel, I would wind up getting significantly better mileage than the official mileage figures. And that that's what happens when you become dirtier, you improve your gas mileage, you improve your carbon emissions, actually, they, they come down. Um, and the only thing that happens is you just become dirtier. The, the the most incredible part about this cheating thing. So just to be clear, the way they cheated was the, the car itself, the software in the car, detected if it was in an emissions test environment. And when it was, it cut down strongly on the nitrogen oxide emis emissions. And then when it wasn't, it let all that nitrogen oxide out up to 35 times what was allowed. And it got better gas mileage and it got, you know, and everyone loved it and seemed like and really it excited. it drove better. It was just a better car. It was a better car and it was the exception to everyone's rule. And people were like incredulous. How did they do this? How and, did the VW would, engineers do it? There was this huge advertising campaign where Volkswagen would go on and on and on and on about its clean diesel. And everyone else would look at them and they'd say, this doesn't make sense. There's only one way you can make clean diesel and that's to have an extra tank with something called urea in it and then inject the urea but somehow Volkswagen claimed to have technology which was clean diesel without urea. So it seemed like a miracle. Yeah. I mean you know we're talking about 11 million cars in the end they've said they they shipped like this. The 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 to give you a scale of this besides the number of people who 
died, or potentially could have died, that Brad did as a back of the envelope calculation. Uh, the Guardian pointed out that the emissions from these 11 million cars uh, were responsible for about, it was about 1 million tons of air pollution every year, quote, roughly the same as the UK's combined emissions for all power stations, vehicles, industry, and agriculture. I mean, this is a environmental catastrophe that's been perpetrated uh, very consciously. I mean, this is... And, and just to be clear, this is, while this is a huge number, it's about between, you know, 500,000 and a million tons of NOx per year. It's still tiny compared to the total amount of NOx emissions globally from all of the cars on the road. Cars are just filthy. And while a lot of us kind of in the back of our heads know that they kill a lot of people in car accidents, uh, you know, this is the other way that cars kill. Mm. I I feel like um, there was a brief period where we forgot that car companies were traditionally looked at as like villains. Um, there is sort of this, you know, I think after we bailed out GM and whatnot, there is this sort of moment where everyone said, okay, our car companies are like national treasures. But and, remember, and they also they also like started reinventing themselves as technology companies. And everyone's like, oh, they're really cool. They're building these computers on wheels and Elon Musk and wow. Exactly. Right. And, but, you know, that's exactly what I want to delve into because what's fascinating to me about this is that it's an algorithm. Like there's an algorithm hidden inside the computer, which is a car. And it's it's hidden from view. And by the way, um, the you know people have been calling for this software to be open source to be able to, so that people can look into it. And of course, the car manufacturer said, "Oh, it's proprietary. It's a very important that it's proprietary because we don't want other people to steal our secrets." And even the EPA opposed opening it up on the grounds that people might try to reprogram their cars to game the system. So the EPA was like, oh, no, we wouldn't want... Which, which actually they would do. Yeah. If you if you could hack your in-car computer, you know there's a bunch of hot rodders out there who would immediately just ratchet down the clean, ratchet up the dirty, and make the, you know, all in the interest of performance boosting. Yes, but the EPA obviously wasn't looking carefully enough at the actual car manufacturers when they did it. Yeah. So it's a really interesting situation where you have these um, self-regulated automobile manufacturers who are just totally cheating with their software and their algorithms. And the other thing is, which I need to jump in here and say, is that one of the reasons they cheated, a lot of people are just looking at this with great befuddlement going, what were they thinking? Number one, cheating was all but encouraged in Europe on these emissions tests and um, mileage tests and things. They would do all manner of weird things in Europe, like taking off the wing mirrors and taping up the car doors all to make things that make, make the mileage figures look better. The idea that the official testing environment was a highly artificial environment and the only job of it was to game the system to get the best numbers was kind of ingrained in these manufacturers. And then the other thing is that Ford has paid like a $9 million fine for putting its um, trucks into a clean mode when they got emissions tested yep, and this kind of thing. It's not the first time it's it It's not the first time it has happened. Other people have done this, just not quite as egregiously. Yeah, I mean, and this kind of is the scary part is a, a we're remembering that car companies are not necessarily the most ethical of, of corporations i mean i mean even on the scale of big corporations and the fact that this is now happening through software which is more opaque to some degree especially because of the laws that or the regulatory treatment of it it's 
bound to happen again in the future. That's what everyone's looking at. It's just it's almost unless I mean the unless they come down on Volkswagen so hard that the deterrent effect is just like lasts through the centuries. But I that seems impossible. It so seems his, like this his, is the thing is going. Yeah, to I mean question. let's let's see how yeah. the Justice Department does with their white collar crime. That well, was, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, or more to the point. I mean, rem- I keep on just coming back to this idea that. There are half a million of these diesel, Volkswagen diesel cars in the U.S. There are 10 million in Europe. Like, the people who should be in the driver's seat, haha, are really the European (laughs) regulators rather than the U.S. ones. Um, The question which I have in the back of my mind is, would it help or would it not help if the fine was so big and back of the envelope, we're probably talking about $150-plus billion dollars, to drive Volkswagen into bankruptcy and force them to basically wipe out all of their shareholders. Would that help? I think that would help. I think, yeah, I think I think people going to jail would help too. I'm going to throw that in. I mean, I... I, I, I think I, they should be closed down. I mean, this this was what, their... What, you mean with all 272,000 well, employees? That, that's, the, that's the problem here is then you get into... The, these companies are massive, massive employers and the, the, we bailed out GM for a reason. And so you know there is there we you can't just instantly replace that that company in any economy. I, um, I have relations. I'm half German, and Volkswagen is more or less the only employer in Wolfsburg in what used to be East Germany. And if you shut down Volkswagen, that would be like an entire state of Germany would be would be devastated. It's much more of a sort of single employer state than anywhere in Illinois that, that's or kind Michigan. Of, that's kind of why I think Kathy is on on the right track here. With I mean, well, just I, putting wait, so, people in jail. Yeah, like, put people is, in jail. But do you really think they should be shut down? Well, I mean, I think another car company would emerge if that happened. Like it wouldn't just not not in Wolfsburg. It wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And I mean, look, this has to be taken seriously. I mean, I saw an article this morning in the New York Times about how. Uh, the police are using algorithms to decide who to scrutinize and who to arrest. And I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Unintentional or intentional things can happen in software. And, you know, we're putting all this power into the hands of software and we have to scrutinize it. We have to figure out a way to audit these algorithms. And, you know, whether someone intentionally does something or unintentionally does something, I think this was absolutely intentional. But I think all sorts of algorithms are unintentionally doing things like this. And it's crazy. And we have no idea how to handle it yet. Okay. I'm just going to put a little coda onto this discussion um, when it comes to car-based software and algorithms and whatnot. There was a wonderful little test done last week by... Uh, they got a bunch of people who, they, they surveyed them and said, how good are you at parallel parking? And they got a bunch of these cars with little parallel parking buttons. And 80% of the drivers said they're better than average at parallel parking because they're <laughs> Americans. That's always the case. And so they did they did. The I, bu- I buy them. I really am better at parallel parking. Wait, wait, how many of them were from New York? Because <laughs> it may have been accurate. Like. So, they, so they did the test, and it turns out that the humans are so much worse than the cars at parallel parking, it's not even funny. They take many more back and forths, they bang into the curb more often, they bang into the car behind more often, they bang into the car in front more often, and they just, and then whereas whereas the computers on the car just get it absolutely right and they're perfect, and then after seeing this, three out of four of the humans who are like, 
yeah, I'm better than the computer. I, my parallel parking is awesome. Well, I would, I would never let my car parallel park. I want to do it myself. <laughs> just that's pr- interesting. Is it just pride or delusion or both? Probably both. Anyway, I just want to coda on your coda. Like that's what bumpers are for: bumping into people when you're parallel parking. Just saying. <laughs> Fact. 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 Okay. We are also sponsored this week by Open Account, which is a podcast. So go and download Open Account. It was created by Suchin Pak and Umpqua Bank. And it's a whole podcast devoted to money as a taboo. It's this thing which we don't really talk about very much, but which if we do talk about, you'd wind up having these incredibly honest and emotional and sometimes rather funny experiences. So that is what the podcast is. Go to open account on iTunes and go deep into the most rewarding, challenging and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America. Um, And finally, this week, we are going to talk about Kickstarter, which is one of my favorite companies started on the Lower East Side of New York in a walk up on Rivington Street. It was very cool. And I've been there. Hipsterish. But now they're in Brooklyn. They're in I Greenpoint. Know. And they have a very cool big space there. And I feel that we have long since passed the point at which we need to explain what Kickstarter does. It's just become a kind of verb. You know, it'd be like explaining Google is this company where you type in a word and then it searches the internet for you. So I'm going to assume that everyone listening to this podcast knows what Kickstarter is, but Kickstarter is also, like so many um, technology companies these days, a venture-backed, for-profit company. And it has investors like Fred Wilson of um, Union Square Ventures, who is a legendary investor and has made lots and lots of money, including on Etsy, which is one of his other investments which went public and made him a fortune. The And which we talked about. And which we talked about when it went public. The interesting thing about Kickstarter is that it is actually reincorporated in Delaware as something known as a public benefit corporation, which means that it is not always putting profits first. It worries about all of its stakeholders and it has a mission, a corporate mission to basically support the arts, um, which is up there in priority alongside or even above the idea of we should make lots of money for our shareholders. And when they announced this, they announced this at the same time as giving an interview to the New York Times, where they said, not only are we a public benefit corporation, because, uh, and we're going to get to Etsy in a minute, not only are we a public benefit corporation, which Etsy is kind of sort of like that, we are also making a very explicit decision that we are not going to sell the company and we are not going to go public. And Fred Wilson, the venture capitalist, went, yay, awesome, good on you. And that, to me, was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there uh, beyond that, I think they also said they were going to donate 5% of their profits to charity, too, every year. There was something along yep. those lines. I mean, they, there, there was, which is, I mean, that's concrete. That's very real. Um, and if you look at other companies, which are B Corps like this, like Patagonia, this is something which, once you really embrace view it deeply into the company, it just becomes part of the culture, and it's a great thing. Yeah. So is this a story about uh, people being good-hearted and, like, caring about the world and, and rethinking business, or is this a story about how companies, like, no longer want to go public? Like, which... Or, or is it a story about, 
what works for branding. Yeah, I, 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 I'm having trouble like wrapping my. I mean, there are a lot of stories here actually, but the fact that you have a venture capitalist saying, "Oh, don't worry about your IPO. I'll make back my," because he still cares about making back his money. Saying that, well, he, Fred Wilson, in particular, specifically, might not care that much money. But he has money. LPs. He has people who are invested in his funds and who right. are right. Th- He doesn't want to lose him. money, but he he might not be like ten x, ten x in three years and three years. You know, he. So my feeling here is that when you go public, what you're doing is you're selling your company at a small discount to its long-term permanent value in order to get a bunch of money up front, and that. What we are seeing now is a different model where you basically keep all of that long-term permanent value for yourself. You don't sell it to speculators on the stock exchange, and you make more money over the long term that way. Yeah, so it's almost like venture capitalists turning into Warren Buffett? Yes, maybe. exactly. Well, they're yeah. getting calm because yeah. they're, they're the, so, so rich already. This is the get-rich-slowly um Get richer slowly. Of 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 Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's, you know, long term co chair, the or vice chair. The, the the way I think about this is that Kickstarter is still controlled by its two founders, Perry Chen and Yancy Strickler. And they have an interesting question. What do they what are they going to do with this really kind of good company that they have created? And there's a possibility here for them to create a company which will last more or less in perpetuity and do good more or less in perpetuity, which will do more good more or less in perpetuity than if they just went public and tried to be philanthropists. That for-profit philanthropy or merging a philanthropic mission with a for-profit company can actually have that both parts of the company can help each other and make each other better. So I have a question about... And that's that's definitely, you know, the, the vision I've read about for B Corps. Is there one company that, you know, is there one public benefit corporation that really has proven over any kind of long term that this paradigm actually works? I, I and I actually, you know, I don't know how long they've been around. How long yeah. have B Corps? So B Corps have not been around that long. Yeah. So we said so the, the, the short answer. Not in yet, the, right. the, the, the data's not in, but I feel that yes is the short answer that. Patagonia is probably one of the best examples. That okay. Even though it hasn't officially been a B Corp for that long, because B Corps haven't existed for that long, mm-hmm. as soon as B Lab started giving out these certifications, Patagonia got the certification because it really didn't need to change anything in order to get it. It's been doing this kind of thing for a long time, and it's been very successful at it. I, I mean, I, I don't want to be a total cynic here, but I, I do have, I have to point one thing out, which is that Kickstarter makes its money by people donating money for projects, right? No, yeah. it's not it's not a donation. It, I mean they're very key, they're very clear about this. They don't accept charities. They only accept, you know, people doing creative projects and actually giving something of value in return. Okay. Uh, that's true. But it is a kind of generosity of spirit that is that it takes over people when they go to Kickstarter. That's yes. what makes it all you, work. It, it's patronage. You want to support people in what they're right. doing. So I'm just saying that it, they, they can't do good and all this stuff can't work for Kickstarter unless they get the people to come and give their money, up, sort of buy things from these creative artists. Yes. Right. So I'm just saying that there is, to some extent, branding going on here, too. They just no, simply want... No, of course want... there is. It's a for-profit company. No yeah. one's denying that. Yeah. yeah, and and they have a great brand, and the reason why 
it looks like Kickstarter is going to be able to be around for decades to come is precisely because they have managed to build this incredible brand. I mean, this is a feature, not a bug. Yeah. I'm just saying that it, it I don't know. It's it's hard for me to just, it is actually, I guess, I guess I'm personally confused by this combination of philanthropy and for-profit. And I guess this is what B Corp is trying to to answer. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea of B Lab and, I don't know if we want to get into the rather arcane differences between a B-certified company and a public benefit corporation as certified as, as incorporated in Delaware. Um, but this is the whole point, that it's, they're not opposed to each other, and you can do both at the same time. And in fact, if you do do both at the same time, that in some ways, in many ways, in theory at least, can make you more profitable and more philanthropic. Like, everyone benefits. It's a positive-sum game. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's always confused me a little bit about B Corps is how much of the certification or, or the reorganization actually has any legal implications. Um, because I know just a regular old corporate, corporation has a lot of latitude on what they can do. The whole idea that it's share, you know, shareholder value, shareholder value, shareholder value, it's actually kind of false. Like, that doesn't really hold in court. But there are there are many lawsuits in Delaware, because virtually everyone's incorporated in Delaware. Um, That's what happens which, which try and say that directors of a company have some kind of fiduciary obje- uh, obligation to shareholders. Shareholders can also, if they want, vote out directors of the company yeah. who are philanthropically inclined. Um, or one of the things they can do is they can simply buy the company. You can make a hostile takeover yeah. bid for a public company and then strip out all of the philanthropy and try and maximize its value and make money that way. And if you are a public benefit corporation in Delaware, then that gives you almost unlimited ability to just simply say, no, we're not selling to you. Okay. So that's where the outrageous part of the story comes in, that it's out... The outrageous is that they actually have... It's a a for-profit company with protections from awful people. A little bit like that. And it's going to be fascinating to see what happens to Etsy. We'll just, like, loop back and, and close on this, which is that Etsy is a B Corp. It is certified by B Lab. It is a benefit corporation. It has not done what Kickstarter did which is actually change its charter in Delaware to become a public benefit corporation. Under the B-Lab rules, it has, I think, until mid-2017 to do that. And if it doesn't do that by mid-2017, then it will lose its B Corp certification from B-Lab. So it's going to be fascinating to see whether a company which is now public and which has public shareholders can do this as easily as Kickstarter just did it. Interesting. What's your bet? What's your bet, Jordan? I'm skeptical. That's <laughs> I, I, I'm short on that one. But anyway, we'll see. I'll take the other side of the You'll bet. You'll take the other side I of the bet? I think they'll do it. Okay. Okay. Numbers round, people. Yes. First, I, want, I need to tell you about Braintree, which is code for easy online payments. If you're putting together an app and you want your users in that app to be able to pay you, and the best way to do that is to sign up for Braintree. It's very simple. They have excellent customer service. It's used by Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight. Big companies trust it because they know what they're doing. They can do it for you. It's what's known as a full-stack payment solution. It sounds like jargon, but trust me, 
it's what you want. It, it will accept PayPal, it will accept Apple Pay, it will accept Bitcoin, whatever you want, it's there. And you can get $50,000 in transactions fee-free if you go to braintreepayments.com slash slate money. Kathy, what's your number? $28 trillion. Damn. That's a damn to, large yeah, number. <laughs> Woo. Yes, it is. That's Watch like out. twice U.S. GDP. Right. Well, here's what it is. <laughs> it comes from a McKinsey report released this week that said if women achieve parity, which is they define as women played an identical role in the economy as men, then uh, that that's how much we would boost sort of the global gross domestic product by $28 billion. Trillion. $28 trillion, sorry. Um, what I like about the statistic is it's both it both makes sense and makes no sense at all. <laughs> okay, thank you. I was, about, I was like, waiting. I was like, like, Kathy, have you like totally... It this, makes this no is not sense the Kathy I know. No. I mean, it makes sense because it is a way of measuring the difference between the way women and men are treated and the way they uh, they survive in the economy or the way they, they act in the economy, their roles. At the same time, it's like, no, women could not play the identical role as men because then who would be doing all the work? You know, like what it just wouldn't work. Like you couldn't just say every man is, and every woman we're going to pair them off, and they're both going to do the man's no, job. I'll tell you who would do the work. We're, we'll we'll get the kids. To the do kids, the work. yes. We'll get the kids to do the work. Send the kids to work. My and number. The kids, by the way, will be alone. Just to be clear, <laughs> yeah. well, it works and the, unfed. There's, there's, like there's the this wonderful, like you know, Edward, you know like, Lord Lord of the Flies world of twenty eight trillion dollars more in GDP, but all of the kids eating each other. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, two million dollars is is my um conspicuous consumption data point this week. I was reading the Wall Street Journal's mansion section. Don't ask me why I was reading the, the Wall, Wall Street, Street Journal's, Journal's mansion, mansion section. Great, it's it fantastic. is awesome. Don't and they don't had a it. they had a fantastic story this week about a technology executive in Palo Alto. And this is the reason I I really glommed onto this is because. Technology executives in Palo Alto are meant to be the people who don't really go in for conspicuous consumption, that homes in Palo Alto are relatively modest, at least from the outside. They look like a standard suburban home. They drive normal cars and, you know, they don't really show off their wealth that much. There's this technology executive in Palo Alto who spent $2 million on a 446 square foot swimming pool. Wow. Wow. Which works out at four and a half thousand dollars per square foot, or yeah, you know, it's insane. And the thing about the swimming pool, I love this so much. Is there much. software attached to the swimming pool? Of course, there's software. Come on, like, what is it? It's is a it? smart. It's a, it's a it's swimming a smart pool fo- of smart things. Pool. It's it's a it's a pool where the bottom goes up and down. Of course. <laughs> So you can you can raise the floor of the swimming pool, and the great thing about raising the floor of the swimming pool is that then, when it's raised and the water goes away, his kids can ride around on the floor of the swimming pool on their scooters. You know, I feel like those are, uh, Wall Street Journal sections, and there's also the New York Times like lifestyle sections, yeah. are actually written by an occupier. They are. They are basically <laughs> um, because like they're written like you could read them either way every single time. You could yeah. and like so rich people could be like, oh well, I should get one of those pools, or like or somebody else would be like, oh my god, 
That's outrageous. Yeah. It's perfect for the outrageous episode, by the way. They tend to be relatively low, like just a little inside baseball here. They tend to be relatively low level jobs within the newsroom. Like it's a 20 something making a journalist salary. So the the goal is to keep the most deadpan delivery possible while you're describing this absurd, conspicuous consumption. Absurd. So no one can really read you, but everyone can take away what they want from the article. Exactly. Um, but anyway, what's your number? My number is slightly larger than yours. Well, it's it's more of a range, but I'm gonna go with five million for my number, um, which is a little background. Uh, House Speaker John Boehner announced that he is going to retire, not just from his speakership, but from Congress entirely. Come hmm. October, it's the end of the road for the man who, uh, if nothing else, uh, made sure his party didn't do too much irreparable damage to America during his time in charge. Uh, but uh, two years ago, when he was dealing with some of the kind of antics of the Tea Party, I wrote, I, I wrote an article asking how much money could John Boehner make if he left Congress and became a lobbyist. Um, and I was told by a lot of high-powered people in Washington law and lobbying firms who do this sort of hiring that the high end of the range was about $5 million a year. He what, could, what's the low end? The low end I got was uh, about a million, a little, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. But depending on exactly what kind of role he did and whether or not he's full-time or part-time, he can probably rake in, a de- he can rake in easily over seven figures. So, Do you think he's really going to want to, I mean, obviously if someone's paying him $5 million a year, he'll, that's a lot of money to stay in Washington. But after that, career i just want to get anywhere but oh my so my assumption is he's going to do sort of a tom daschle type thing daschle obviously uh former senate majority leader for the democrats um i believe still is at dla piper which is a a massive international law and lobbying firm where he's never technically registered as a lobbyist um but he's a, a policy advisor which gives him a lot of free time on the side but it's sort of like you're the firm mascot for Washington. You're like the guy that is like faces on the door. And a lot of it's, you know, brand equity. Essentially, they're paying you for. I, 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 certainly, if I was a major corporate corporation in America and I knew that John Boehner was working for a company, I would make a beeline to that company. And I'd be like, <laughs> show me John Boehner. Give me a meeting with John Boehner and I will, I will sign you up for a multi-million dollar contract. Or maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> anyway... That is that is uh, it for us this week. Um, write to us, please. Slate money at slate.com. If you can think of a single reason why having John Boehner at a company is a reason to spend more money <laughs> on that company. Um, and while you're doing it, um, subscribe to the show by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Many thanks to Audrey Quinn this week in particular. Uh, thanks also to Andy Bowers, the executive producer. Slate Money is part of the Panoply network, and they are all pretty good shows at Panoply. So they're at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. 
for the ones who get it done.